because there's a talk that parents of color, especially parents of black children in America, have been having with their children since we got here hundreds of years ago. And it's a talk that says that some people in this society will see you as not human or as violent or as not safe simply because of how you look. And that may affect your health. It may affect your success in life. Um, it, it's a survival talk. It is about letting kids know that you live in a world that is not always going to be friendly to you. However, challenging them to always be open and friendly and positive so that you never get misrecognized as one of those bad kids, as the thug, as that scary black person. You're listening to the voice of Dr. Sonny Kelly, who is a world-class performer, storyteller, motivator, speaker, and comedian. He was a PhD in communication and performance studies from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, a master's degree in communication study from Stanford University in California, and a bachelor's degree in international relations. After serving our nation as a U.S. Air Force officer, Sonny has gone to serve as a nonprofit organizational director, a university admissions counselor, a pharmaceutical sales rep, a college communication instructor, and a church youth pastor. As a lover of theater and performance, Sonny has acted professionally on stage and television for over 20 years. He wrote, directed, and acted in many plays. And in this episode, he's going to talk about his play titled The Talk. Dr. Kelly has made the recording of The Talk available for public viewing right now online until July 10th, 2020. The link to the play is in the show note. So you're probably wondering, what is this talk that we're talking about? Well, have you given your child the talk lately? You're probably thinking the birds and the bee talk, which is about your girl going into womanhood or your boy going into manhood. But in this episode, you will learn that there is a different type of talk where communities of colors are telling their children. It is when a black father tells his black son how to behave, live, and react in order to survive and thrive in the world that we live today. Dr. Kelly has been performing the talk for several years now, where he has acted out over 20 characters, highlighting the historical moments in the lives of black men who were lynched, tortured, and murdered because of the color of your skin. But in this show, it's not just about a recap of history, but it is an opportunity to engage the audience, that's you, for our own self-inquiry about history and your role in making history today. The purpose of the play is not to place shame or guilt here. Instead, Dr. Kelly doesn't call you out, but calls you in to be a part of this new hope for our future generation because we are all in this together. So please listen on. Hello, friends. This is the What is Public Health podcast with your host, Dr. Ki Chan. What is public health? To me, public health is the invisible force that keeps you healthy every day, and I bet you didn't even know it. This podcast is your source of the latest trend in public health. How are you doing, Dr. Sonny Kelly? I know that you just finished your doctoral program, so congratulations, Dr. Kelly. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) I do love to hear the word doctor, Dr. Chan. I'm glad to be here. Um, You can call me Sonny, please. We go back. We go back. But I'm doing great. Thank you. I would like for us to maybe chat how we met, because it might be a great way for our audience to know, like, the field of public health is a great way to really network with many individuals with so many different backgrounds and expertise. So if you maybe want to just share with our audience, like, how did we meet? Well, yeah, I was really, really 
blessed to have met you because I was actually in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and our local uh, public health program there, the Gilling School of Public Health, was doing some work with uh, with maternal and child health programs, and they called me in to just talk about children and um, communication because my focus is communication. And from there, somehow my word ended up in the national shortlist, and I was invited to the uh, the AMCHP. Uh, uh, basically program training. And when I got there, I found you were there and you were talking about taking numbers and turning them into stories so that you can be more impactful and effective with your research. And I love that as a researcher, but also as a storyteller, I found a point of connection. And I thought it was great that you presented first and talked numbers. And then I came and I talked personal stories and how we can tie them all together to make a difference for the masses. Yeah, I know that was such a great opportunity to meet other people. And I was just so thankful that, you know, I got to meet you after my session because it just really emphasized the importance of storytelling to researchers. Because, you know, as researchers and as scientists and clinicians and professors out there, like we are so interested in our own subjects that we could get into the nitty details of things and the data that we may ignore what our audience really need to hear. And sometimes the story behind those numbers. And for me, like as a data scientist, like I'm really emphasizing on number, number crunching. And sometimes I get too obsessed with the numbers and I have to stand back and say, okay, what's the story behind this number? Like, why am I showing these numbers? And then your presentation was so amazing, like how you can create stories through drama. And so I was so happy that we got to chat afterwards and so glad that we connected and we kept in touch. Um, it's been about a year since that presentation, I think. Since then, I remember that you were completing your doctorate degree and you recently completed it. So thank you know, congratulations, Dr. Kelly. And yeah. I think it might be interesting for our audience to learn more about your background because you know, you actually was not it wasn't a traditional route, right? You actually did a lot of many different things before you decide to pursue a PhD. And I think it might encourage a lot of our listeners that it is never too late to learn and it's never too late to transition. So if you could share your interesting career journey, that'd be great. That is so true. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm the quintessential non-traditional student in many ways. I, I grew up in California, Southern California. And when I was growing up, I knew I wanted to do some acting because I was a child actor. I'd done some episodes of different TV shows. You know, I did an episode of Full House when I was 16, an episode of a show called Wonder Years. I did commercials, had my Screen Actors Guild card. But when I decided to go off to college, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to explore... I didn't know it. I just want to find myself and figure out what I was supposed to do in the world. So I went to Stanford University in the Bay Area of California on an ROTC scholarship, Air Force ROTC. And my brother was in the Air Force Academy. So we were a family that was open to military service. And I thought, oh, this is a great way to pay for school. My father was a high school teacher. My mother did in-home daycare. So our family's always been about helping people, connecting, teaching, youth. And so those have always been inside me, but I didn't know where they fit. So I went off to Stanford and I started doing live theater there and realized, oh, I like live theater more than TV, even though it doesn't pay as much. But there's something about being in front of a live audience. But at the same time, I was ROTC. And when you're Air Force ROTC, you can't become a theater major. Like they don't have slots for theater majors in the Air Force. So I, I, I chose the next best thing. I became an international relations major. And my focus was on development in Latin America. So I learned Spanish. I, I studied abroad in Chile. I went, did some volunteer work in Mexico and Ecuador, and I became fluent in Spanish through that process. And I worked with, lived with, studied with some of the smartest people I'd ever met. And I always say that Stanford was a wake-up call for me. From a, a kid from Southern California at a run-of-the-mill public school, 
uh, to go to Stanford where you've got world-class Olympic level athletes who are also like giving you a run for your money in the classroom. I was like, all nighters forever. <laughs> I didn't sleep much there, but I, I grew and I learned and I developed. And when I got out, I came to Fayetteville, North Carolina. That was my first base where I was an intelligence officer for the C-130 aircraft uh, here, the home of the 82nd Airborne Division. So in that, I got involved with community theater while I was doing my military job. And so I found that I could do a little bit of all of these things and it would fit, it would work. I started volunteering at Fayetteville Urban Ministries Find a Friend program. And I found that I could do some youth work and really find some fulfilling uh, spaces to kind of express myself there as well. So what I learned was that if you just try stuff, you'll find places where you fit. And that's kind of how I became, some people say I'm kind of the Renaissance man because I've done so many things. Uh, but long story short, I met my wonderful wife, Elena, when she was in the Air Force and I was in. I got out in 2002. Um, she got stationed in San Antonio, Texas. So after a short stint, actually working full-time for that nonprofit Fable Urban Ministries Find a Friend Youth Program, I moved to San Antonio. And when we got there, I became a, a college admissions counselor for St. Mary's University there. And I also learned that I wanted to get into higher education, seeing what was happening around me and how people's minds were, were growing and being molded through the, the higher education experience. So I decided to get my master's degree in communication. And so I pursued my master's degree. At the same time, I was like, I got to have a job because I come from hustlers. We always work. We find something to do, right? So I, uh, I had a friend who did pharmaceutical sales and I got into pharmaceutical sales. So while I was pursuing my master's in communication by night, I was wheeling and dealing, going to doctor's offices, selling mostly urological and uh, respiratory products. So I sold things like Viagra, which sold itself. All I had to do was show up. Um, but I had to be smart, though. I had to be smart about how to do it. You know, you got to finesse that thing. So you imagine, especially if you're dealing with a, a physician that's a female and I'm a male and I'm like, how do I talk to you about rigidity? and about how that connects to cardiovascular health, right? And so I found ways to kind of dance and move and work with people. And I, I found ways to talk to some of the smartest human beings I'd ever met. I mean, physicians are super duper smart and they're also oftentimes overlooked. They just kind of just assume they're supposed to do their job or know what, they're, um, know what they do or know their specialty, but people forget they're humans with histories who have stories. So I found that when I listened to their stories and I shared my stories, I was able to connect and I became a great salesman because people buy from the people whom they like. Uh, somebody taught me a long time ago, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care, right? So I went in through uh, pharmaceutical sales and then I'd done that for three and a half years, was really successful, but I, I found myself, I was still volunteering with youth and this time I was volunteering at a church in San Antonio and they needed a youth pastor. And I had a, a big change of heart, a big, I guess, a transition moment in my life. And I, I prayed about it and I, I realized it was time for me to lead the youth in this way. So I walked away from the cushy life of the pharmaceutical sales rep, always get to jump up in the front with my, my Starbucks coffee. And I, I started wearing jeans and t-shirts and working with kids and loving them and encourage them and teach them love and life. And I did that for about another uh, three years, two years. And then in 2012, I, I came back to San Antonio, I was back to Fayetteville, excuse me. Uh, my wife and I came back to Fayetteville, which is her hometown, but I was offered a job working for Fayetteville Urban Ministry back with the Find a Friend program again. And so I did that for a few years and I realized, ah, I love this theater thing. When I was with Fayetteville Urban Ministry, I was writing grants, I was directing a staff, I was helping to, you know, to put together all the resources needed for, for public services to the communities who needed it most. And that was, I thought, my end game. I thought that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to serve people. I've always loved that. But I started getting that itch, like, no, there's something else. There's something else. 
And I did a play at Cape Fear Regional Theater in Fayetteville. It's called The Parchment Hour. And it's a play written by Mike, Mike Wiley. And this play, The Parchment Hour, is it's a bit of, of ethnography, of history, and just a beautiful drama written about the 1961 Freedom Riders, the, the college students and young people for the most part who, who tried to integrate the interstate uh, transportation system back in 1961. So you have people of all different backgrounds, racial, religious, ethnic backgrounds, jumping on these buses and these trains trying to integrate the, uh, the system to make it more just and equitable, right? Which we will talk about today. And my, my mentor, Mike Wiley, who wrote the play, uh, cast me in the role as Stokely Carmichael. And it was a musical, and I'm, not a, I'm, a, I'm a double threat. I got the good rhythm and I can act, but I'm not much of a singer. But it gave me a shot. Long story short, I was so amazed by the fact that many of my lines and many of the scenes in the show were from real history. Like he'd done research. This wasn't just a play, this was a history lesson. And it was a call to action for the audience as well. Um, have we arrived yet? In some ways, yes, but we have more work to do. And so that piece was so compelling to me that I thought, I want to do more of this. And I, I met another person who was going to UNC Chapel Hill, and they were getting their PhD in communication with a focus on performance studies. And at that point, I had my master's degree. I thought, I want to teach. I love teaching. But maybe this is something I should pursue. So I applied, took the GRE, totally bombed the math part. Like, I mean, bomb, like lower than the 50th percentile, which I mean, I'm a Stanford guy. I don't score lower than 50th percentile in anything, you know, maybe golf. I'm really bad at that. But like when it comes to academics. So I was really disappointed, really upset. And I called up the communication department at UNC Chapel Hill. I said, look, I just took the GRD, blew the verbal and the writing out of the water. It's what I love to do. But the math is like really low. And they said, oh, we don't even look at the math. You're good. I was like, yes. So I was admitted. And um, at this point, I had two kids, a wife. And I'd come through several careers, but I knew that this was my calling. And so I spent three years living on campus in Chapel Hill, which is two hours from where I live in Fayetteville. So I would commute. I would stay in Chapel Hill four days a week. I'd be back home with my family three days a week. Meanwhile, my wife is a reservist in the Air Force. She's also a sexual assault prevention and reporting officer, sexual assault prevention reporting advocate at Pope Airfield. So she was working multiple jobs and raising kids while I was pursuing the dream. Um, and it wasn't until May of this year that I actually finished that journey. I, uh, I wrote my dissertation, which is called Pipelines to Pathways, uh, Reframing and Reclaiming Black Youth Identity Through Performance. I defended it successfully and I graduated. Didn't get to walk because, you know, that Rona, but I did get a chance to, um, I've had a chance to celebrate along the way. And I thank you so much for calling me Dr. Kelly. I, it's always nice to hear. Uh, I'm the first one in my bloodline to be a doctor, to achieve that. My father got a master's and his father got uh, barely a high school degree. So it's every generation getting better. So it's nice to be part of that, that legacy of hope, you know. Um, so that's how I am here today in my research because it is about reframing and reclaiming identity through our communication. In my case, more specifically, through how we perform our communication, whether we're on a stage, a classroom, or a podcast, how are we performing um, our sense of identity, our sense of hope, our sense of unity, our sense of community. And I think that we can actively, um, we can actively participate in that, that performance in a way that can be constructive and helpful and move us toward equity, inclusion, social transformation. Wow. Well, congratulations again, Dr. Kelly. <laughs> and it's amazing to see your career path and how it took you to tell me different directions. And what I was listening, it was resonate was that you listened and you listened to that calling and you follow that calling. And I think a lot of 
many of us, you know, we want to pursue something different or we're a little nervous, but we hear that calling and a lot of us have, you know, have a little voice that maybe dampens it or don't want to change. Hearing your story, I hope our listeners are going to be encouraged that to follow that calling because that calling is going to keep on calling you until you actually, you know, actually pursue that. So I'm so happy to see that, you know, even though these may be so different, people were like, well, why are you doing this? Or shouldn't you just continue doing this? Or you're a pharmaceutical rep. You can be continuing making a lot of money. But then, you know, your calling was telling you something different. And so you also created such a wonderful piece, a masterpiece. Thank you for sharing the link to the talk. This is something that I think our audience and our listener would love to learn more about. Um, so Dr. Kelly, I know that as you were working on so many different jobs and also pursuing your PhD, you also took had time to write a play and also <laughs> perform the play. And in the play, you play like 20 some different characters. Um, so it was really amazing. And it was so entertaining and also it was interactive. So I really applaud you for, you know, incorporating all those different tools that, you know, you learn in communication and also involve the audience. Because then well, even watching it through the screen, like I felt I was able to participate too, because you had so many inquiries for me to think about, like you pose these questions or and also you, the way you created the talk was that it incorporates some history and some history that I learned a while back, but I've kind of forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so you reminded us like the importance of it and how relevant it, it is to today. So uh, hopefully listeners are really curious now, like what is this talk that we're talking about? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when we think about the talk is when I first heard about, you know, Dr. Kelly, the talk, I was thinking, oh, is this the talk about give your kids or the, or the talk that your parents gave you about the birds and the bees, about womanhood and about manhood. But right. the talk here is actually something very different. And so Dr. Kelly Osani, if you want, is that, you know, we would love for you to tell us more about how you created the talk. And, and also like what do you want the audience to learn from the talk? So love for you to elaborate. And I know we don't want to give away what the talk is so that people want to see it, but enough for people to be like, oh my gosh, like I got to see it now. Yeah. Well, let me, let, let me tell you this. You're so right. Most people, when they hear the word of the phrase, the talk, they think it's the birds and the bees, right? And they get a pleasant surprise eventually when they see my talk. At first it's a shock. Because there's a talk that parents of color, especially parents of black children in America, have been having with their children since we got here hundreds of years ago. And it's a talk that says that some people in this society will see you as not human or as violent or as not safe simply because of how you look. And that may affect your health. It may affect your success in life. Um, it, it's a survival talk. It is about letting kids know that you live in a world that is not always going to be friendly to you. However, challenging them to always be open and friendly and positive so that you never get misrecognized as one of those bad kids, as the thug, as that scary black person, right? Um, it's a sad thing that we have to have this talk, but I received the talk. The talk was given to my father and his four parents before him. And of course, in generations past, the talk was very much essential when we lived in uh, Jim Crow and in, in, in a society where black people could have been pulled off the streets just for being black in the wrong area, right? And it still happens today in some places, but back then it was legal, right? It was condoned. Um, we can talk about the history of lynching, right? From the, the uh, 19th century to the early 20th century, over 5,000 black people were lynched and many of them hung from trees and hung there for days as a symbol of white dominance, right? 
And I thank God we're not where we used to be, but there's still some remnants of that today. And, and so I was sitting down with my son, Sterling, he's now 12. At the time he was seven years old, it was uh, 2015, it was April, and we were listening to the news and we heard about riots in Baltimore, Maryland. And we learned that the source of these riots uh, was Freddie Gray, a black man. A black man I was used to hearing the name of on the news because I'd been following this, but my son had been insulated from it. I hadn't shared this with him before. And in that moment, as I'm dropping him off for school, I realized, oh, wait a second. He's going to hear about these riots and all this violence and realize there's this thing called racial violence. There's this thing called racism. And because of the body that he lives in, the dark, brown, beautiful, chocolate body, right? And it's a male body. He's often seen as a threat. And he's going to have to navigate a world where he's not always going to get the benefit of the doubt. How do I prepare him for that? You know, when I was in the Air Force, I was an intelligence officer. So I would, I would give an intelligence briefing before my air crews would fly a mission. So I've deployed to Kuwait and Oman and Saudi Arabia, different places. And every time the air crew would fly a mission, they would come to me first and I would tell them, hey, these are the threats that could, that could uh, cause you damage. There's small arms fire. There's been reports of uh, rocket-propelled grenades here. These are the surface air missiles that can knock you out. I want you to be ready and prepared and come back to me safely. I don't think anything's gonna happen, but if something does, I want you to be ready. And thank God, I never had an air, aircraft uh, shot down, never had any problems like that. However, you just never know. There's a certain precarity to that, right? And that's the same way it is to send a black child out into the world today. You think they're probably gonna do well, they come from a good family, they know how to work hard, they speak well, they're polite, whatever the case may be, but you never know, just one, small mistakes, some small uh, uh, misjudgment or, or, or misreading of them. The child could be perfect, do nothing wrong, but they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe their hoodie's up when someone thinks that it shouldn't be up. Maybe they're in a place where they're the only black person and someone's curious as to why that black person is here. They start asking the child questions. Now we start to raise the level of stress in the area. And now people are getting upset. And now some violence happens. And usually if the person with the darker skin that is, has the violence inflicted upon them. And so I say all that to say, I had a minute to explain to this child his all-encompassing blackness and what that meant to his existence and how I wanted him to thrive in the world, but first I needed him to survive in the world. So I, I took about a minute to explain to Sterling the fact that racism is real and most people are wonderful and beautiful and kind and they see him as wonderful and beautiful and kind as he is, but there are some people who won't. And those people oftentimes, sometimes have power and they have power to hurt you or to change your life. And they are not always idiots. They are smart people. They're just misinformed. Um, and, and I need you to be ready for that. And so after I had that talk about a week later, I just found myself weeping. When I had the talk, it was key, it was crazy. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like I didn't prepare for it. I hadn't thought, oh, one day I have to have a talk with my son. I, it just hit me all of a sudden. And it was almost like it was uh, instinctual. I just told them what I just told you in a nutshell in about a minute. It's like, all right, have a good day at school. But then the week later, I was walking through downtown Fayetteville and out of nowhere, just as we know, trauma, trauma works kind of like a specter, right? It kind of just snuck up on me and my, my chest started getting tight and my, my throat started lumping and my stomach started flipping and, and tears were coming out of my eyes. And I didn't know where that was coming from. And as I started to assess my feelings and, and where was the root of it all, I realized I had to do something that I never wanted to do and no one should ever have to do. Uh, I had to compromise my child's innocence just so that he could get along and survive in, in, a, in a racialized and divided America. And I realized after having had that talk 
that millions of black people have been and continue to have the talk with their kids. And likewise, millions of white people don't ever have the talk with their kids because they don't even know it exists. They talk about the birds and the bees, right? And in my research and in doing this show, I performed the show over a hundred times now across really coast, almost coast to coast. I've gone to Milwaukee, that's as far as I've gone. And then across, uh, I've been up to Syracuse, New York and through the Carolinas and Tennessee performing the talk. And I found that so many white people do not have the talk with their white children because they don't want to um, jade them. They want to protect them from racism. They don't want them to feel guilty or they want them to be colorblind. And that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a valid and honorable intent. Uh, but the problem is that the world is not colorblind. So they're doing a disservice to their kids by not at least talking about race. But I get why. They don't talk about race, by and large, because they want to protect, insulate their kids from the slings and arrows of racism. It's an ugly, uncomfortable thing. Most black parents or parents of black children, because there are many parents of black children who are not black themselves, but still have to have the talk. Most parents of black children find that they have to have the talk. They feel compelled, as I did, to have the talk in order to protect their children. So you see, we have the same intention here, the same desire. We both want to protect our children. But one side does not have the talk to protect their children. One side feels compelled to have the talk to protect their children. And that's just the black and white. We can talk right now about the talk your parents have had with you, right? The talks that you will have with children in your your life, in your family, because there's a different expectation from the Asian person or the Asian woman. Is she supposed to be docile, right? Is she supposed to keep her peace? Can she stand up and do... I mean, there, there are all these stereotypes and tropes that we rarely ever talk about, but they're in our skin. And we notice it because when you walk into a room, you see how the room changes. The energy changes. There's an adjustment. They talk differently to you than they do to me. There's a certain masculine privilege that I have. And we saw, we've seen that even, we've traveled, we were in the same place. And you could even notice a certain way that people might even walk up and pursue me versus you. Whereas they might give me more space. Uh, But they'd say, well, she's smaller and she's feminine. They might not give you as much space, right? So what the cool thing about the talk is, it's a daddy's experience. And yes, it starts with the black experience, but it expands into this wider, broader conversation about how we really need to do better by each other. And we really need to be talking about these things that other communities are talking about because that's, it's only fair to them if we're really gonna be inclusive and equitable in our approaches to research, to work, to just community, right? Just to living together. When I was watching your show, Sonny, and the talk and how you weave the conversation that you had with your, with your son and then how you brought in historical moments and like how it has impacted the lives of black people, how it has changed and how little it hasn't changed. And that was kind of most shocking that it's almost that you see a replay again and again with some change in the, in the show once these issues happen, but then it goes back to where it was before. And so in some ways, the talk that you're having with your child, I could imagine that your son would probably have to have the talk when he is raising his son. And I just wonder during this time period, like, is there an opportunity that we could maybe have everyone talk about the talk so that we're all kind of changing our view about the way we see each other? Because, you, you know, I mean, so- entendre, right? Talk about the talk, exactly. Yeah, because without talking about the talk, like other people aren't aware about the talk, right? And so like for me, like when you first, when I first knew about your talk, I was you know, curious about learning more about it. One of the questions I had, you know, from watching your show was, you know, you talk about the talk and then your son reacts to it at the very end. Okay, you're the person trying to convey this very difficult 
and complex issue, but also at the same time, you have to because it's to protect your son's life. I was just curious, like, how did your son react to the talk, like, in real life? And did it differ from when you reacted when your dad gave that talk to you? I'm just really curious. And did your son have any questions? And did you really understand at the age of seven what you were implying? Because, you know, when I was seven years old in elementary school, like, I don't think I even understood like my my sense of identity that did I really look different that I was Chinese uh, I mean I looked different but I didn't really understand what being Chinese meant right and so I'm just wondering how did your son react like in real life like that's not portrayed in this in the show yeah, it's, it's a great question you you asked about my response to my father first what's interesting is my father grew up in the segregated South and he grew up with such a strong aversion to the ugliness of racism that he never really presented it to us. He didn't give us, I don't remember getting the talk as a child. Um, but when I was 16 and I became a driver, that's when I got what I would call the talk. Put your hands on the two o'clock and the 10 o'clock sign. Don't pop off at the mouth. Keep your registration ready. Keep your license ready. Keep your insurance ready. You call the officer, sir, ma'am, officer, right? You do not have space to play in this setting. And I always joke, my father was a high school teacher. He taught high school driver's ed. And I remember he would teach his, his students that keeping their hands on the two o'clock and the 10 o'clock would help them to respond more quickly and defensively while the vehicle was in motion. But for me, the two o'clock and the 10 o'clock was also a lesson in the business of survival while the vehicle was stopped. And he was so serious. It was so, such a grave moment that I knew to pay attention. I could feel the tension. But even then I was like, eh, oppression, police brutality, that's stuff that happened back in the day. you know. Now keep in mind, this was about a year after Rodney King was beaten almost to death uh, in Los Angeles. You will remember that. And that led to the LA riots. So this was a real thing. I knew it was real, but I always thought, well, you know, I'm in Orange County, you know, I, I, you know it's, it's, it's probably not gonna happen to me. So I was, I was very much overconfident. But I think, like you said, as I grew up and I saw these, this, these repetitions, and like I always say, it's much better. I mean, the fact that I can perform the talk throughout the South and people listen and want to talk about it and want to do better. That's huge. That's a big transition from where we used to be. There was a time when I would have been arrested for doing this show a few decades ago, right? Or I certainly would have been booked. I couldn't perform it anywhere. And so I'm performing and sharing it on the national level, right? Uh, and so I know that things are better, but I'm seeing these patterns. And so for me, I felt like I had to have a talk with my son earlier because not only is the media projecting these images and I have to help him make sense of it, but the fact is, I don't know if he's ever going to be that one who's misread, right? We talk in the show about the, uh, the school to prison pipeline and how kids, black kids, are, tend to be punished and put into systems of discipline for doing the same things that other kids do, right? Um, but their, their, their activity is oftentimes misread as pre-criminality, right? So I talked to my son about this show. Well, after I gave him the talk, it was such a rush. I sent him off to school. And the funny thing is, I think he was worried about me because he could sense the tension that I felt and having to explain this and the discomfort. He was like, okay, you're just trying to calm me down. I get it. I think he got it, but I don't think he fully got it. Because like you said, when you're seven, what do you really get, right? But here's something great about him. He's emotionally intelligent enough, or he was at the time, to read Daddy Stressed. This really bothers him. Let me put a little, put that in the, in the parking lot, put a little notch on that, but let me just let him know I understand so he'll stop being stressed. But later on, about a two years later, he was nine, we had been performing the talk. When I say we, I've been performing the talk, but I like to have my kids come to the show and my wife comes to the show. Her voice is that first voice that you hear singing Brown Babies. That's my wife, Elena. Yeah, it's really a beautiful like, family affair. 
So it's a very organic piece, right? It's all comes from my own stories, my own research, and my family's involved. I talk about my kids in it. So I'd love to have my sons in the first row and watch the show. Now, what's funny is Langston always falls asleep after the first 20 minutes. After I say the Langston Hughes poem, he's like, that's my name. Then he goes to sleep. Sterling tends to stay awake. Well, I said, Sterling, after one of the shows, do you feel any fear or do you feel upset about the show? Because I don't want to... I don't want you to think that you don't live in a great country. And I don't want you to feel like you can't be yourself in the world. He said, no, 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 it's a good show. He said, now, sometimes you forget your lines and you know, you gotta do better on that. But other than that, he said, I don't think that people would assume that I would have access to weapons or drugs at this point, because I'm only not. But in the future, I think that the talk will apply to me more. That was like huge to me, like his resilience his intelligence. I mean, he said it just about like that. I was like, okay, I think I'm doing something right. I think my wife and I are doing something right here. So that was really encouraging for me to know that he wasn't jaded. I hadn't stolen his innocence, but he's, he's aware of his surroundings and he's ready for whatever the world may bring him. You know? So, um, I, I, and I think a lot of feedback I've gotten from parents of black children after they see the show is thank you so much. Cause I've been telling my child to be careful, but they don't really pay attention. So when I go into the history and I say, hey, Emmett Till, 1955, Trayvon Martin, uh, 2012, this kind of stuff still keeps happening. Then we can go to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. You know, we can go down the line. Like, it's not as safe as you might think. Don't be um, careless out there because you can't afford to be careless. My kids, for example, they don't play with fake guns. Not because I'm uh, violence averse, even though I'm more of a pacifist, even though I was in the Air Force. I don't like gun play, but... I wouldn't even consider it for two black boys living in a neighborhood that's a mixed neighborhood, for them to be out in the front with a gun? No, that's carelessness. We cannot afford that kind of, you know, that's a misstep that my ancestors and my parents have taught me we cannot afford. We may not survive that. And I think it's very important that parents of children who are not black know this, that there are certain expectations people have of different racial groups. And those expectations sometimes turn into action. And that action can be to the detriment of that child. That's great that, you know, the purpose of this talk is to prepare your child to thrive in this world and, and also to emphasize the world isn't as bad as it is. It's a good country. Mm-hmm. But I guess I was also wondering, like, does your children think that it seems unfair that they have to adjust their their way of life because of how society has seen them? And should that change? Do they ever get that sense of unfairness? You know, I think that on the surface, they understand that it's absolutely unfair. But at the heart of the matter, they also understand that they can be part of the solution. And they, they walk with the hope. There's a Bible scripture that we, that we use in our household lives from 2 Timothy um, uh, uh, 1.7. And it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound. And so we know that we are not to walk in fear because we have greater things to happen in our lives. We have a destiny and there's a plan. And so we, 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 we commit ourselves to power, love, and a sound mind. I think my wife and I walk that out. So we acknowledge the fact that there are problems in this country and that we need to do better. But we also acknowledge the fact that we expect better from ourselves and from those around us. And so there's a binary that you probably caught in the play. I, I love to work with kind of binaries of two sides of things. Um, and it's, it's hustle and it's hope. My grandmother always hustled. She always worked hard, right? She was a cleaning woman all her life until her 80s. My, my father always hustled. I mean, he, was, he joined the Marines. He was a teacher. He was always working jobs. He's been working since he was seven. 
And um, my parents have always been committed to hustle. My family is committed to hustle, the hard work. But we also know that things are not the way they should be. And no matter how much you hustle, you may not always have the same opportunities as other people get. But you hold on to hope that things will get better. And part of things getting better is you hustling in the face of adversity, in the face of racism or oppression, whatever you want to call it, saying, I'm going to hustle through this. I'm still going to do better than I, I would have. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to sit on the bench. And I'm going to challenge you to do better. I'm going to vote uh, in ways that, that impact change. I'm going to speak up, protest in ways that impact change. I'm going to stand up for what's right. Always hoping, holding on to hope, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, holding on to faith that things can get better. And I think that we've instilled that enough in our sons where I've never said, heard them speak with fear or even trepidation about racism. They have this very healthy, resilient, kind of matter of fact understanding that racism's real. I see a dude with a, a, a white uh, ghost-like uh, cap on walking the other way, not cool. But I'm gonna expect people to do better than that. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. I think that's a very healthy balance, acknowledging the threat, but also saying, you know what? I'm going to expect better for myself and expect better for the next generation. You know, I mentioned the fact that my father got a master's degree and me getting a PhD is just an example of that hope. You know, one of my favorite parts in the, in the show is when my grandmother, Ma, she yells, get your lesson. And I always kid that she would chase us kids around the house. You know, we, she would chase us around and say, get your lesson. And Ma was deaf, so she had no, vol no concept of volume control, right? So she'd yell at the top of her lungs, and it would scare you. So you'd be reading a book or doing your homework, and if you just looked up to, you know, breathe or think, she would square up on you like she was going to fight you. And she was fierce, right? Yeah, go, Russian. But the moment you went back to reading, she would just sit back and quiet as a mouse, she'd stare at you and just watch you. And that was the hope. And I knew from a very young age that I was endowed with hope. I was called to do greater things. And that, that's not even something you can talk. That wasn't talked, taught to me or talked to me. It was lived out. And I think that, that when you can hold on to those two notions, it's going to take hard work and hustle and it's going to hurt. And it's not always going to be fair. And sometimes you will be hurt, but we will hold on to hope and we will demand that this country live up to its creed. And we're going to be part of that, um, that creed. We're not gonna just demand that it externally live up to its creed. We are gonna be tied in and grafted in as true Americans who are part of this American dream. So we're gonna grab it and take it and make it better for the people that come behind us. And I think that's what we've been teaching them. And so I'm very pleasantly, um, not even surprised, I'm just very happy with the fact that they don't, they don't seem to be scared or angry. Um, and I think that they know what injustice is. So when they see injustice at any level, it does bring up a certain indignation in them, but they don't hold on to the bitterness because the hope tempers it. No, but it's going to get better. We got to do better. We got to vote better. We got to live better. We got to protest better, whatever it may take. You know, there's, there's always something you can do. Oh, that was so wonderful for you to share that the purpose of the, of the talk is to really instill hope and that your kids, even though they're exposed to the talk, racism that's happening in the world so early on, that they can hold on to hope and as a way to look at life. Because I think, you know, during you know, the protests, a lot of people may turn that um, incident, you know, as a way for outrage and anger and through rioting. But, you know, I think your message is that, you know, what we see now, we have, there's a personal choice and that choice is to choose hope. And I think that's such a wonderful message that you're sharing through your show and through your children and that we can continue sharing hope 
you know, in so many different capacity. And, you know, I was also wondering, you know, since we're talking about the talk and that it's about hope, that the talk was about how to be a Black man in the U.S., in the community of color, is there a similar talk to female of color? And I was wondering, you know, what would the, you know, does that exist? And is it the same approach, you know, what parents would you know, talk to their daughters about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kian, I'm so glad you brought that up because I've had so many women of color after the show and fathers of women of color after the show, they'll say to me, but what about that perspective? And I say, well, my perspective is one from a male perspective because of who I am and I'm raising two males. But I think it's so valid and so important because there are different talks. Just about every black girl or woman that I've spoken to about this subject has received some type of talk. But what I'm challenged with is oftentimes their talk is more cursory. It's like, hey, you're black in America, there's racism, be careful. And the talks that happen with boys, primarily because of the images that we see of police brutality and of lynching and uh, of black male bodies being destroyed and, and, and neutralized uh, by, by figures of power, the talk we have with boys tend to be much more serious and existential. Like, boy, you will die, if you, you know what I'm saying? And so those, the, the, the males, we tend to remember our talks a little bit more. It tend to rise more saliently in our, in our, uh, in our imaginaries because we remember the stress on our parents' faces. But what I've heard from a lot of the females is it's more of, okay, be careful with your attitude. Uh, be careful that you don't come off as too sexy, which I think a lot of females get that talk anyway, right? But especially black females. I, I talk about this in my research. Black children in America are, are in the crosshairs of inequity and, uh, and criminalization. And black children, more often than not, when compared to other races, are animalized more, they're dehumanized more, they're criminalized more, right? People tend to see a black face and think they're older than they are. And there are several studies in social psychology about implicit bias that show that people who are in law enforcement, college students, people in teaching, they tend to add two to five years to the typical black child. Not sure why, it just is what it is. Uh, which you can imagine if you're in a courtroom, what that says to culpability. If you're 15, but you look 17 or 18, right? Um, And then you've got this notion of animalization. People tend to associate black faces or African faces with animal faces. Our noses tend to be wider, our lips are thicker, our bone structure is a little bit different, but there's an actual association that people have with that. Part of that is because of, of the Western notion of what beauty is. Part of that is because in a Christian nation, in order for them to rationalize treating human beings like cattle, they had to dehumanize them. Because see, the Bible says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're not really my neighbor, but you're more of an animal, then I'm not really breaking that commandment, right? And so what happens is over time, over centuries, we as Americans have been conditioned to animalize those who are not white. The far end of that spectrum is African. And then all the other races, you know, they go up to there. And so that's what eugenics was all about, right? whose brains are bigger and smart, you know, who's closer to our ape relatives and who's the most sapient of the homo sapiens, right? And for some reason, somehow, the European always came out to be the most sapient, right? Um, so this animalization is a problem because I don't have a problem with you putting your knee on an animal's neck to control them because they're an animal. They don't understand, right? We've, I've gone to the rodeo in California. I lived in Texas. I've gone to the rodeo and you see the, the cowboy jump off the horse and grab the cattle and flip the cattle over and tie off the cattle. And they, they, it's like, oh, wow, what the, the athleticism, what a feat, right? Of controlling this huge bovine beast. Well, a lot of that mentality gets applied to black bodies when you see them being wrangled or arrested, as we might say, by the police. 
when we start to see them, or we not even start, it's been here before, when we understand that we oftentimes see black people as more animal-like than white people. We are still humans. We've come a long way, but more animal-like, right? And then the criminalization, that just comes down to what we see in the media. At any given day, in Milwaukee, I'm sure you can attest to this as well, but here in Fayetteville, if I open the newspaper and I look at the crime section, I'm going to see more black and brown faces than I am going to see anything else. I see that. I record that. My children record that. Everybody else's children record that. There's this notion of criminality that gets associated with black people, whether we like it or not. So I will give you an example. When George Floyd was arrested and that video happened, one of the first things that I think Langston, my youngest child, asked was, what did he do? Not why is this man being treated like an animal and a knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds? Daddy, what did he do? When Amon Arbery was shot for jogging in a neighborhood, which most of us tend to do, just jogging outside, my oldest son, Sterling, asked, Daddy, did he have a hoodie on like Trayvon Martin? In other words, what did he do wrong? What could he have done better? How did he miscalculate that? Because, you know, it's crazy that we're having to think this way, but we're facing these pressures. So going back to females, they deal with the criminalization, the animalization, the dehumanization, but then also the sexualization, you know, the big booty. The, the video vixen, right? You've got this notion of the black woman being sexually available, uh, her curves being something that is uh, easily objectified because it becomes public property. We should be able to look at it and touch it and put it onto the videos and all this other kind of stuff. So black women oftentimes have a very complicated talk. And I think because we don't have a lot of language to get down to it, the talks of black women tend to be simpler because the stakes are not as high in terms of the perception of death. But when you look at people like Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor and many, many others, black women are killed at high rates. Black women are incarcerated at much higher rates, actually increasingly higher rates than black men uh, in terms of the increase that we're seeing. So I've noticed that black women, um, they, they often get neglected in the talk, but they, they definitely get it. But I would like to dig deeper into that conversation and, and work on a show with that in terms of how do you fight off the forces that would make you be an make you appear to be an animal, unhuman, criminal, and a sexual object all at the same time, right? Um, that, that's a conversation I'm glad you brought up. It's a conversation that doesn't happen enough in public, and part of that is because it makes us all uncomfortable. Think about the mammy figure, right? Aunt Jemima just got canceled, right? Now, people might be wondering, how do you cancel Aunt Jemima, man? It's just it's, it's great syrup. It's just, it's just syrup. It's just breakfast food. But what's a mammy? A mammy was a woman who was owned by another human being. That human being oftentimes had sex with her without her will. We call that rape. And that's why we have a lot of people like me who are light-skinned and mixed because they were people who took liberties and raped their slaves. But also, a mammy was demeaned so much so that she was put into a position where she would continue to lactate so that she could feed the master's children because the master's wife thought herself above breastfeeding. So the mammy would have her own children and would literally pull her own suckling children off her breast, dehumanizing because they don't deserve this and feed the white child. That's white superior, superiority enacted by a black person under duress. But so when we talk about systemic racism, there are these systems that have come in and created these tropes and these images and we just play with them like it's breakfast cereal. No, or breakfast you know, foods. It's deeper than that. It means something more and it has meant something more. Um, and I think if until we talk about it, we can't really dismantle it. That's so true that all of us have to really consider like when we give the talk is also like give the historical background about why we're giving the talk as opposed to like what the talk is like the they're removing the image on the syrup and i think i think the company has made a statement saying that they were slowly moving that but they didn't completely move the, move, move the image but what they didn't say is like what the symbolic of the image was and that 
And it wasn't just that, okay, it was a black lady on the on the syrup, but it was actually the historical of like white privilege versus black suppression during that time. And that is always, always mass, right? It's mass because it's an uncomfortable conversation to have at public. And so, and so Sunny, thank you for sharing that perspective, because I think that's a part that I think a lot of people are uncomfortable, like seeing that, oh my gosh, like that is what happened. And so, and it's still happening today. And I think that's the uncomfortable part that how little has changed. And in your show, I think what was also very interesting that, you know, that kind of leads to like, why? So I would, you know, as researcher, we're like, why do we see what we see, right? Like, as researcher, we see an, we see an observation, we, we have a hypothesis, and we do a study. But you know, from these studies, like in your show, you also highlighted the statistics that like Black children are three times more likely to live in poverty, three times more likely to be suspended. And because they're suspended, right, that they actually increase their chances, and it's five times more likely to be incarcerated. So this actually is the beginning of the school-to-prison pipeline. And I don't think a lot of people understand what that is, because they just see the end point. They see that, oh, there's a lot of Black men or Black women, I guess you were saying here, are in prison. And if we could maybe have interventions early on in, in schools that protect you know, black children, or actually not have them be suspended, right? Maybe there's different ways of educating, you know, their wrongdoing so that they stay in school. And so that reduces the chance of being incarcerated. So the school to prison pipeline, I think is not a lot of people know what that is. And, and in your play, you do kind of mention about that. And I really like how you kind of weave this part to it. And maybe you could maybe explain to our listener what that means. And that, and I guess I had a question is that, you know, because this exists, like, is there a political will to address this? Because it's it's like you said, like the rates are continuing to increase. So what can we do? Because it's the data is there, but why are we making? Why are we not making? Yeah, good point. I think first things first, we have to name the problem, right? In the show, I talk about the fact that there are multiple truths. Now we all know there's only one absolute truth, but we also know that my truth is informed by how that data lands with me. I have a certain uh, lens, a certain positionality, a standpoint through which I perceive that data. So it's going to mean something different than it means to you. So it becomes my truth, right? Your truth is also developed and framed by your own perception. But when we come together and tell our stories, then it informs each other's truth. Now we have our truth, a deeper understanding of the same data, right? And I think that what I've seen is that when you look at the school to prison pipeline, first I want to give a shout out, cite my sources, uh, the Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Edelman is the executive director there, uh, does a wonderful piece on the cradle to prison pipeline. They call it the cradle to prison pipeline. So if you look up Children's Defense Fund, copious amounts of research on kids and equity um, in America. Then the Equal Justice Institute, Brian Stevenson's uh, uh, project program um, is a great way to look at the prison industrial complex and how this cycle continues on into incarceration. And so as I was researching and I was reading both of these sources, not to mention, of course, the new Jim Crow, um, there's a book out by uh, Morris called Push Out about girls, black girls, especially in incarceration. I started to also work with youth in the community here in Fayetteville with the Find a Friend program and with the Boomerang program. I have my Boomerang shirt on. Boomerang is a program that's in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, it serves the Chapel Hill, Orange County, Carborough school districts with alternative to suspension programming. So boomerangyouth.org. If you want to start making a difference, consider opening up a program like this in your community where kids who get suspended are reconnected, inspired, and built up as opposed to disconnected, pushed away, and punished, right? Which we know, as we've seen with the incarceration system, is not very productive, doesn't do very good at, uh, at rehabilitating people. 
especially if they've never been habilitated in the first place. How do you get rehabilitated if you've grown up in an environment and society where you feel like you're not human or you're an animal or you've been abused, et cetera? And that is not to say that accountability is not important. I mean, I'm raising my kids to be strong, faithful, positive uh, citizens in this country. Accountability is crucial. But accountability also must be tempered with the real understanding of the data and the real understanding of people's lived experiences and how those experiences frame our sense of self, our sense of agency, um, and and our, our possibilities in the first place. And so what I found from my research is that when you look at schools and school discipline, that's where the cycle begins. And actually, if you look at that cycle, that begins with our perception. Where is our perception rooted? In hundreds of years of systematic dehumanization of a people. Now, I don't want to throw up slavery in people's face. And please let me be the first to say I'm not about guilt. I'm not about white guilt. I don't think they're productive. Uh, one of the best compliments anyone has ever given me after the show was a heterosexual cis white male. You have to use all those, those uh, indicators. So let, just let you know his demographic was different from mine uh, in, in many ways. He stood up and he said, I want to thank you for calling me in and not calling me out. And that let me know that he was very frustrated and weary with being called out all the time. So just like I'm called out for, is he a criminal? Is he, is he stealing something? I might be followed in the store and I'm called out in that way. He's oftentimes called out for just showing up in his skin. Is he a bigot? Is he a racist? Who do you vote for, right? Neither of those is productive for conversation or for transformation. So when I say this, I wanna temper it with the fact that I'm not throwing racism up in anybody's face. I'm just saying the vestiges, the remnant of racism continue to show themselves, rear their ugly heads in ways we never thought they would before. That's why they call it systemic racism. Systemic racism doesn't require one bigot to come in and be a bigot. We see that, that's racism, it happens. We should address that. They should be fired, they should be addressed, right? But systemic racism means somebody hit go on a button hundreds of years ago and some of the mechanisms of that go are still happening today, as I talked to you earlier about the dehumanization, how we become desensitized. You see a black man being slammed around by a cop, instantly I think, oh man, what do you do? That's not what I should be thinking. I should be thinking, why are they treating him like an owl, right? But that's how we've been conditioned. And so in this country, in order for people who wanted to make a lot of money to maximize their profits, they had to minimize their cost. How do you minimize your cost? One of your biggest costs is labor. How do you get cheap labor? Even better yet, free labor. You designate a group of people that are easily visually uh, marked as the free labor. You lock them up, you dehumanize them systematically, you separate them from, from their families, you make them nurse somebody else's baby, you make, you make them, you breed them even in public. So something that you and I might think is, oh, that's something that's intimate. Sexual uh, health is very important. Sexual health for them was how you, would, how you would treat cattle. You breed them as if they're animals and you start to disconnect them from their moral grounding. You disconnect them from their sense of humanity and you disconnect them from their sense of self-worth. But while you're doing that, you're doing a great violent moral damage to yourself as well because you're disconnecting yourself from the mutual humanity that you share with these people. And over time, you can't tell me that over hundreds of years, it doesn't impact the moral imaginary of a nation, of all of us. So when we talk about systemic racism and how black children tend to be seen as more culpable and older than they are on average by police officers and judges, the people whose opinion matters most, smart people, when you see that bias playing out, when you look at cross-sections in the Equal Justice Institute, some great, great research on this, cross-sections and in, in, in data from uh, different sets of, of, of uh, different control groups, where you'll see the same infractions, the same basic demographics in terms of income, in terms of age, but the only difference is race. And you're seeing a huge increase in 
uh, convictions and number of, of years of sentencing uh, on the black side, that's a problem. And something is not fair here. And it's called systemic racism. I don't think that there are a whole lot of racist, overtly racist police officers or judges out there thinking, I want to lock up as many black people as possible today. However, there is a mentality in America that has been perpetuated over the years, and we don't talk about it because it does feel icky. Most of the white people that I know don't want to talk about it because they want to be colorblind. They want to raise their kids to be colorblind. But I always tell people, look, we should always be colorblind. But what should be is not. And it's wasting a lot of time to talk about what should be instead of dealing with what is. We're not there yet. Perhaps we'll get there one day. But the more we pretend to be colorblind and not to uh, act and enact our biases, the less service we're doing to transforming them, right? And so these, these, these pipelines start at the school level and they go on to incarceration. Another study that um, I can't cite right now, but another study showed that they did a, a, a research, uh, an observation of students and teachers, and they tracked the, the teacher's eyes at the elementary school level. And they tracked how many times the teachers looked at the white students versus the Asian students and the black students down the line. And the black students got more looks, even if they were doing the same physical activity, got more looks, more monitoring, more vigilance than the other kids. So think about it. All kids mess up and do stuff. But if you're watching me all the time, I'm certainly going to get caught for something in here. So that's one explanation for that increased uh, school discipline, which leads to the school to prison pipeline. But then there's also the fact that hip hop music is a little bit rough for some people and the style and the flow and youth, you know, especially in middle school, nobody likes themselves in middle school, right? So you imagine everybody in middle school is cantankerous and they're full of angst and they're acting out. They're trying to find themselves. But you happen to be in that group that is always watched and it's expected that they will do something animal-like or boisterous or, you know. And so you're going to be caught more often for doing stuff that most kids end up doing. You just get caught more often with it. And the more often you get caught, the more often you get labeled and stigmatized as the bad kid, the thug, the troubled one. And you get marginalized and pushed out. And if there's not a great program like uh, Boomerang or like the Finder Friend program in uh, Faithful or Ministry, where you have after school programming and summer camps, you don't have people encouraging you saying, hey, you messed up. It's what kids do. Come on. It's OK. You're no different. I think one of the most painful questions a kid has ever asked me while I'm doing one of my poetry workshops, he said, why don't they like us? I said, what do you mean? Why don't they like? He said, white people, why don't they like us? And I'm like, where'd you get that? He said, we were just out on the playground and this white woman picked up her kids and ran away. And that happens to me all the time. And so I tell folks, you don't have to teach racism. You don't have to always talk about it. People can sense. We feel we're animals in that sense, right? We, we sense. We know energy. We know flow. We know eye contact. That's why I teach communication, right? 90% of what we're communicating here is nonverbals, right? So you know I'm excited about this because I'm all over here, right? And so all you have to do is live out the biases that are within you. Your nonverbals alone will speak for themselves. It doesn't mean you're a racist. doesn't mean you're a bigot. doesn't mean you need to feel bad about yourself. It means you've been conditioned by a system that has historically dehumanized certain people. So when we say Black Lives Matter, it is never mutually exclusive. It never means that Black Lives Matter more. It doesn't mean that Black Lives Matter and others don't matter. It means historically in this country, Black lives have not mattered, if we're honest. And because of that, we just feel like we need to say it. And hopefully, I pray one day we won't have to say it. And we'll say all lives matter and it will be true. But if we say all lives matter now, that's not quite true. At least not, it's not the way I feel. So I'm reading all kinds of nonverbals from the neck on George Floyd's neck, from the knee on George Floyd's neck, 
to the bullet that went through Trayvon Martin, to the, the vigilantes who stopped Ahmaud Arbery and thought that they had the right to stop him and interrogate him as if he were a criminal. Those are the nonverbals I'm reading. I don't have to hear a word. I don't have to read a book to know that black lives don't seem to matter to a lot of people with power and pistols in this country. Thank you so much for sharing, Sonny. I mean, it's just, you know, your thoughts on racism just really help enlighten us that, you know, that it's a, it's systemic. And I think that's, uh, I think that is maybe one of the, um, these observations that I've noticed now is that people are just starting to just wake up to like, oh, like, you know, Black Lives Matters or there's these health equity issues. And, and then in public health, you know, as, you know, as scholars working in public health or studying public health, like this is one of our biggest challenges is how do we decrease health disparity and address health equity? Because, you know, this, you know, based on research and historical data that this has been a systemic issue and systemic racism can impact the health, you know, of a child. And even in research, like in maternal child health, you know, when a, when a mother, or actually when a woman is pregnant, you know, with the fetus, the the sense of racism that she is sensing actually influences the fetal mm-hmm. development, you know? And so, 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 so when you think about that, so even before pregnancy, like the preconceptional phase, while that woman is working and all that racism and stress impacts her body and then impacts the fetal development. And so that the fetus who becomes a baby is already, you know, has already has all these sensors to stress. And so unless, you know, we think about how can we change you know, these factors that, you know, that are maybe just like you said, like they're nonverbal, right? They're not, it's not like they're yelling at you, right? It's these, the, the way people react to you can actually influence, like stress, you know, a, a person of color. And yeah. so, you know, so I think that, you know, I really apply for like sharing, you know, your thoughts on racism and just the history of race, because I think sometimes we forget about those things. Cause you know, right now it's like all on TV and it's, you know, it's dramatized. But then, you know, we also have to think about like this has been a historical issue, and and the question we should ask is like why, right? And why hasn't it changed? And then and why is and then in public health we say racism is a public health issue. And I maybe if you can maybe expand upon that because I think that's the part that I think a lot of people un- don't understand is that it's something that we've been trying to study, we've been trying to address, and you know, right now a lot of you know I, I've noticed a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, it's like these issues, these health equity issues or Black Lives Matter is like, oh, this is something we've been trying to study for decades and we're still trying to understand. So, yeah. I was gonna say, that's why you and I connect. People might be wondering, why why does she have a communication PhD on her show? And it's because I'm I'm all about transforming from uh, inequity to equity, right? From simply stating diversity to moving to a place of inclusion. And that has direct uh, impact on our health. And I think if you look at the data, as we said earlier, there are multiple ways you can read the data. I hear conservatives saying, well, the data just means that the blacks need to be more compliant with their medications, right? Um, they need to change their lifestyles. They have higher rates of alcohol abuse. And uh, okay, I hear what you're saying. And then of course, on the left side, which I tend to lean more toward in this particular case, especially, it's like, well, no, there are systems that are throwing people into uh, these uh, these environments that are not healthy, right? And you brought up a great point. Even if I have a totally healthy body, I've made every possible positive choice, I'm compliant with all my medications, there's still this stress that I feel from the tension that I sense between us because of my body, right? And I pass it on to my children, not even intentionally, whether I give them the talk or not, right? So, so check this out. So if I'm uncomfortable coming to you because you don't like the way I dress or you might think that I'm uh, not safe or maybe you, we, there are studies on this, maybe you think that my pain tolerance is higher than the average white person's, right? Which is, that's a 
horrible, horrible uh, myth that existed in this country and, and still does in some ways for some physicians, hopefully a very tiny, minute minority. Um, but there are horrible stories about, you know, black women giving birth with no anesthesia, even though they wanted it because it was considered that their, that their, um, their pain tolerance was higher than most. So they didn't need it. We could save money, right? And then on top of that, let me just add a little benevolence. She's poor. So she can't afford the uh, epidural. So, you know, let's save her some money. And, you know, and so we find ways to kind of make ourselves feel good. We rationalize this stuff, right? And so my point is this. Sure, everybody should be compliant. I used to sell pharmaceuticals. pharmaceuticals. That was the biggest uh, stressor that I had was that a doctor would, would prescribe a medication I was selling. And if patients weren't compliant, then they'd stop prescribing that because they're trying to find something to make them compliant. Is that an accountability issue, a personal choice? In some ways, but what if you can't afford to get a refill? What if you can't afford to take this pill that's going to make you a little bit drowsy because you got to work a 12-hour shift? What if you don't feel comfortable talking to doctors or going into doctors because you have felt so judged and so disrespected that you avoid the doctor? That's not a case of you making bad choices in and of themselves. It's a case of systems that have been breaking you down over time and you're trying to work your way through them the best way that you can, which is why COVID-19 is so disproportionately hitting communities of color. And I've heard most recently it's hitting communities of uh, immigrant communities, especially communities from uh, Latin countries, Latinx community more than ever. You've got the language barrier. You've got also the race, the race and racism. And with a lot of the rhetoric, the anti-immigrant rhetoric that we've had um, equating um, people coming from Mexico to, ra to rapists, just because they came from Mexico, right? That language, that irresponsible language, it plays right into the systems of racism that America is so used to. And those people are afraid. They're afraid of getting help. Um, there are, there's new legislation that's come through, of course, uh, that says that if you get any kind of public help, there's a greater chance that you won't be able to stay in the country. So they wanna stay safe. They wanna stay here. They don't go to the doctor, right? And then of course you have the comorbidities. Why is there more diabetes in these communities? Because, well, unhealthy food is cheaper. Let's give it that. Let's just start with that. Food deserts, right? Who gets relegated to the food deserts? Typically people of black, brown, and low income, right? And so if we look at those systems and realize it's not about some evil, ha-ha, racist, bigot king at the top of it saying, you go here, you go there, but it's rather just systems that we've all been kind of um, complicit in and we're kind of comfortable with. If you're like me, I, I, I have a PhD, I'm a professor at a college, my wife has a wonderful job with the government, we can work from home or not, we can get to the doctor if we need to, need to we're good. But we are a small minority of the people who look like me in terms of the resources we have access to, in terms of the health that we've had access to. I can go buy a bag of kale and there's no skin off my nose, right? But if you have a lot of kids to, to feed or you have a low income, you have to be very smart and judicious about what you purchase. And you don't have time to be thinking about how many antioxidants are in this. I need to get calories into these kids so they can go to school and live their life. And don't live in a community that has a lot of violence in it. Now your stress levels up, your cortisol is pumping through your veins, right? And you're not sleeping well. I talked to a young lady who, um, who's worked with me on the show to talk and she sat on a panel with me. She's a recent graduate and she's going on to college and we're so proud of her, but she did that against the odds. I, she has two little sisters and I asked her, I said, well, what does the talk mean to you? She said, it's very true and it's very real and we need to talk about this because I find that I'm always stressed out about race and about these things that are happening. And I said, what stresses you out the most? She said, I think just trying to protect my sisters because I live in a, a neighborhood where there's always gunshots and things and I'm just trying to like, I know when I go to school, they're going to think I'm the typical black girl um, because I don't speak like everybody else and I don't have the background that everybody else has. And I, I know that I have to do better academically just to be respected in that environment. 
but I don't sleep much. I said, how much you sleep at night? She goes, some nights, not at all. And she, this girl is limping along and dragging. You think it's not affecting her health and her academics? All this data is speaking to and pointing to these systems. And so I'm so glad you brought that up because I think if we can just stop, stop grabbing on the guilt and stop getting angry about the data and just let the data be and state what it is and say, okay, how do we get better? Now, people on the, on the right side are saying you got to do schools of choice. I get that. That makes sense. You know, people should have a choice to go to a better school, but that requires transportation. That requires a schedule that's amenable to that. That requires you being comfortable with leaving your own community and being a minority somewhere else, right? That requires a lot of adjustment in transition. And if everybody went to a school of choice or to a charter school, then that leaves the public schools open. But guess what? The charter schools have only a certain capacity. So you're still paying into a system of elitism that this com- this country has is has a, a horrible addiction to, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, and what she brings me to my next point is like, you know, because all these systems are in place, it may even seem maybe a little, like, where is the hope? And, you know, your talk is about instilling hope in all of us. And so I'd love for you to leave with us, you know, what do you think we can do together to heal our country, you know, to this maybe social healing yeah. um, in different ways during this time of uncertainty, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, like, you know, we really don't know when, when, when the end is going to happen, like, what, what's the end in sight? And then the economic downfall right now, like unemployment is very high right now. So people have this additional stressor. And also like the recent protests, like given like the recent incidents, which is understandably, we we understand why people want to, um, you know, really want to address the issue, Black Lives Matter, and there's a lot of peaceful protests, but then there's also a lot of riots and other violent activities happening. So there's so much mix of things happening right now. And so, Sonny, like, you know, what do you think we can do together to heal this country, um, you know, through, you know, you know, through the um, approaches you have done, and you think that maybe we could also try doing together? Mm-hmm. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I think that we're in a season where we need healing. That's a beautiful way to put it in the context of public health and just the context of the the moral imagination, uh, the heart of a nation. We need healing. And I just don't think that you can heal by violence. Violence begets violence. So I want to first say that. I know there are a lot of people who are saying, well, you know, violence in the streets or rioting and looting is the the voice of a disgruntled people. I, I think that there are other ways we can say it. I think Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself, whom everybody wants to cite on the left, right, top and the bottom, uh, said very clearly that that violence begets violence and that that is not the way to to address the issue. And it's certainly not the way to heal. I do believe, though, that when you have a burn, there's a process called debriefing and you have to get the dead skin off first so that you can get to the, the lower levels and start to heal and nurture those ones. I think that we need to start talking about these issues and that's a process of debriefing, naming the issues, getting through our own fragility, our own guilt, and just being honest with what's happening, right? And then start changing policies. I'm very pleased with how quickly policymakers and even corporations are adjusting everything from Aunt Jemima. That's a debriefing, right? I'm, I'm uncomfortable. That's my breakfast, uh, that's my syrup. Well, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to take that off because it's part of the death that's killing us, right? Making fun of black women, um, making light of what a mammy was and, and, and you know, trying to say we can transform. No, let's just get out of that. Let's debris that, right? And let's tell the truth to each other. And let's own it when we're wrong or when we don't know. 
right? I think it's very important that we as communities of color also let white people know it's okay to make mistakes. There are a lot of white people and I, I teach, uh, I've taught at UNC Chapel Hill, I teach at Fayetteville Technical Community College and I teach public speaking. So my whole job is to encourage people to find their voice and lift their voice and share so that we can all learn from each other and move toward this hope. Well, I find a lot of my white students are nervous and they're scared and they clamp up. And that's not what I want. That's not what I want as a teacher. That's not what I, I want as a citizen of this country. I want people to share because if you're ignorant and you don't share your ignorance, how can I educate you? Right. We shouldn't punish ignorance. We should punish bad behavior. But ignorance needs to be educated. Right. This is what I'm asking for for black children in this country. We shouldn't punish a black child because they're acting out because they're hungry or they're sleepy or they're confused or they're ignorant. We should educate and nurture and find ways to navigate them through this system. Right. I would argue even in the public schools, we don't have to make a separate school for it. Let's find better policies and practices here. So I'm encouraged because I'm seeing teachers talking about better policies and practices. I'm seeing police officers and police stations and whole jurisdictions all the way up to the FBI. Right. The Senate's trying to pass a bill or tried to pass a bill for police reform, uh, making chokeholds illegal, for example, making police officers more accountable uh, to the public. I think all that stuff, these are conversations we weren't having two months ago. And I hate the fact that people died for this. But I'm like you, I've seen the data. When I saw George Floyd die and I saw Ahmaud Arbery die, heard about Breonna Taylor, I wasn't surprised. I know this kind of stuff happens. I was actually glad that it was visual and people were actually talking about it for once and talking about it in a way that I think is becoming generative, right? Um, I think that when you see policy changes, you see the fact that, uh, that Derek Chauvin, the murderer of George Floyd, was, was arrested by Friday. The murder happened on Monday the 25th. He was arrested by Friday. I've never heard of a white officer killing a black man and getting arrested like that. People taking to the streets and po protest was a big part of that. I'm grateful for people who are protesting. Um, I, I don't think that there's a place of all for rioting. And some people will say, well, you know, at least they're afraid. They're afraid of the rioting. So that's what I think that we have enough mass. We have a critical mass now of people who care. If we keep the protests up, keep the conversations up, we can move toward policy change without having to burn stuff down or steal people's stuff. I mean, what's a 90 inch TV going to do for the movement? I don't think a thing. Um, but it does, does perpetuate stereotypes, doesn't it? Criminality, violence, right? We don't need that. It's not helpful. Uh, so I, I love that. And what I'm working on now is something called uh, Walking the Talk. So I perform the show. And then after the show, we do a talkback. I always have a talkback with the show. So if you're watching the show on the video, it's, it's available now on bulldogdurham.org. And there's a link that you'll be sharing as well. Watch the show now. But I challenge you to have conversations with people about it. Because what I love to do is when I'm doing the show live, I have a conversation with the audience. lasts about 30 to 60 minutes. And then after we've talked the talk, we come up with object lessons and with, with, a, uh, with an action plan. What are we going to do about this now? Because my theater is not a theater that's about catharsis and, oh, I just had a wonderful time. I laughed. I cried. He's a great actor. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm blessed. I thank God. But there's a bigger purpose here. And it does lead toward that hope, that hope that you'll get comfortable talking about uncomfortable things. Then you'll see the audience members and me as your family. And one thing I've learned is that I can disagree with my family. I can be angry with my family. But guess what? They're still family. I'm not going anywhere. And I think the talk kind of develops that environment. So when we start talking the talk, we start saying things we never would have said before. We reveal our ignorance, our vulnerability, our fears, our concerns, and then we can get real with each other. Now that we can trust each other, we can start moving toward walking the talk, these action items. What are we going to do? So after every show, I, I make it real simple. After we've, I've done the talk, we've talked the talk, I give everybody three action items. Number one, I want you to find somebody near you who doesn't look like you, live like you, or love like you, and have a conversation with them. Not about race, 
not about difference, just a conversation. Your dogs, your kids, your cat, whatever. Just talk, human to human. This is the process of humanization. It's a process, right? Of just connecting to each other and meeting people who are different, right? And I, this is what I suggest that police officers do. Go into your communities and talk to people, learn their names. It's not just a beat, it, is a, it should become your community, even if you don't live there. And until it becomes your community, you won't police it like it's your community. And some of these systems will continue. So number one, talk to people who don't look like you, live like you or love like you, who are different from you in some way. Uh, number two, I challenge people to go back home and talk to people who do look, live, and love like you. Your family members, those that you've, people you've always agreed with and you felt comfortable with, talk to them about these issues and say, you know, there are a lot of black people who are having this thing called the talk, which I thought was the birds and the bees, but I saw this show and it's actually deeper than that. And the way he presented it, it wasn't race baiting, it wasn't identity politics, it wasn't some crazy lefty, crazy, it was just a daddy talking to his son. I can't believe, let's talk about this and talk to your kids. I love it when a white person says, I'm gonna go talk to my kids now because I was trying to protect them before, but I actually wanna inform them. And there's a way to, to inform your children without putting guilt or anger or fear on them. You can do it. I've, I'm learning how to do it. I'm gonna ask you to join in with me. So talk to your kids, talk to people who look, love and live like you as well. And then the third thing is find some way to put your money where your mouth is, right? For me, it's Boomerang, Boomerang Youth Org. Great program. Go to the website, invest. Find a friend. Fayetteville Urban Ministry uh, is the, they're, they're the uh, primary um, uh, foundation or the, the primary charity that's being supported by my show now. So when you go to bulldogdurham.org and you watch the show, it's free. We ask you to leave a donation and you can support Find a Friend. They are helping hundreds of kids each year to find the better them, uh, to, to, to love themselves, to be strengthened, to encourage other kids, to mentor other kids. It's a great program and it, 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 it strikes a nail right in the middle of the school to prison pipeline. Um, and so invest in communities that need the most. And, and I'll keep it at a very basic level, something really practical. The economy, as you said, is at an all time low. How about you tip people more than you've ever tipped them before? How about instead of thanking the service um, workers and thanking the nurses and like, oh man, you guys are the front lines of America, appreciate you. You do something nice for them. Get their groceries when they're behind you in the Walmart, right? Uh, there are so many ways we can be kind that are, that are material, that actually do make a difference and impact that we can start doing that now. And I think one blessing of COVID-19 is I have more time to think about things. I can read about things I didn't know about. I can read things like, uh, like Ibram X. Kendi's uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I can read Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility. Um, I can read Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me and just get new perspectives and understandings. I can read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And I may even disagree with some of that stuff, but it just opens my heart and my mind. So when I'm talking to people who don't look like me, I can try to speak that language and connect and communicate. I have time to think about what people are going through. And if I have the money, if you're blessed to have money, be thinking strategically. With every dollar I have, how can I help somebody else? Because we got people who are hurting out there, y'all. Poor people in this country, low wealth people in this country, the overwhelming majority of them, or disproportionately, I'm just saying the overwhelming majority of them are white, but disproportionately, they're black and brown people as well. Um, and I say that just to let you know that we're all represented in that. There are people who are low wealth in this country who feel like they have no way out. And it's not healthy to open up just yet, but if you don't open up, then you know how are we gonna get our jobs back? It's a very tough situation. And mentally, in terms of mental health, we're all going through. So supporting organizations like NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental, uh, uh, mental Illness, right? Support those organizations. When we have mental illness, it's at an all time high because we're in a place where we can't see our physicians and our therapists and our psychotherapists as much. Or we can't afford to get some of the help that we normally would get. And we're locked into these closed in spaces sometimes with people we don't like very much. I don't speak for myself, my family's, I love my family. <laughs> but 
people are going through some crisis and some trauma and some, some struggle here. So if we can start to pay attention to each other more, invest in organizations that are doing something about it, invest in human beings that we see right in front of us right now, drop a 20 on your, your Walmart checker. I don't know if it's, I don't know if they have a company policy. So ask them first, but you know, get people's groceries over tip. Um, when you get to eat out, eat out at a place where you realize that they haven't had a lot of business lately and they need help right? Because every little bit counts. So someone uh, talked to me earlier today about political correctness. And I think political correctness is the wrong way to look at it. It's all about trying to, you know, protect people's feelings. I think instead of being politically correct, I challenge people to be personally connected. I can't impact how your whole people group feel about me. And I'm trying to figure out how I feel about your people group. But what I can do is talk to you, Key. Sonny and Key are talking now eye to eye, and we're learning and teaching at the same time. And if we keep doing that one after another, we become these synapses between all the neurons and we start to start to, to develop something that we've been hoping for, transformation, right? Oh, I really like how you redefine PC, like changing people's view instead of being all political correct, but why don't we focus on that personal connection? Yeah. And that during this time where humanity is really being tested, what else is a better opportunity to really test our PC, which is our personal connection. Mm-hmm. And thank you for those three important um, tips that like, how can we heal right now? Because I think there's also this sense of helplessness at home. Right. Not hopelessness, but just like, okay, what can we do? Like stay at home, but you know, what what can we do? And, and wearing a mask. And then, you know, also there's a lot of controversy about wearing a mask or not wearing a mask because there's like a political slant to why you're wearing a mask. Right. But, you know, people would, you know, take that away, right? Take out the PC about the political correctness about wearing a mask, but it's about personal connection. Like when I wear a mask, it's about personally caring about you, caring about ourselves. And so I really like how you are, you know, ending, you know, our interview by uh, shifting our mindset about about being PC. It's about really about um, personal connection. And those three important tips, like, as you know, I just want to make sure I remember it was that, you know, talk to someone who's different from you and, and, you know, and if you're uncomfortable, sit with that uncomfortableness, right? And then that might tell you something that like, oh, wow, like what type of images or biases is making me feel uncomfortable? And maybe you're not uncomfortable, right? Like you don't know. So maybe just have that sit with that. And then, and then I, I really, I really like that idea. And the second one was like, actually talk with, like, talk about the talk with people like you, yeah, because yeah. sometimes, sometimes we have this group dynamic that we think alike, right? And then thinking alike actually might, uh, might continuous thinking in the wrong way. So I think having being open to talk about the talk with people like you, I think is important. And the third is invest in your community, especially communities that are very vulnerable during this time. And like you said, like tip more, invest in communities, invest in an organization if you can. And so I think these are very um, helpful tips that I think all of us can do. So we're not feeling so helpless that we can actually heal during this time together and actually help each other. Because like the, like the saying says, we're all in this together. In order to get through this, we have to, we have to work together because we're all in this together. Well, we're going to so, come out of this together, right? We're going to get, yes. <laughs> and we're not going to come out the same. There's no way we can go through all that we've been going through these last three months and, and be the same, but we're good. We can choose to be better. You know, and so I always I, I, I tell people, go to SonnyKelly.com and see some of the work that I'm doing, but invite me in. I'm working for the USO uh, in July. I'll be at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. I'll also be doing a virtual uh, talk conversation, talking the talk to walking the talk with the USO. And I'm, I'm looking to work with institutions, with civic organizations. I'm working, uh, plan to work with some of the some Jewish community centers up in the uh, Triangle area here in North Carolina. My heart and my mind are open. 
and I bring this energy and this love and this sense of purpose to everything that I do. So I, I ask people, go to SonnyKelly.com, shoot me a message, um, ask me to come out, and I will do my best to come and keep this conversation going. Um, you said we're all in this together. I instantly thought of uh, of High School Musical. We're all in this together. Anyway, one of my one of the shows I enjoyed when I was younger. But um, you know, we gotta let's laugh, let's laugh, let's sing, let's consider those things we have in common, and then let's build from there, right? And, I, and I'll, I'll say this: my last thing is, I know a lot of people who are trying to find something to do, especially people who are not black, and they're looking at George Floyd and the situation as a black issue, and it's not; it's a human issue. We can all be doing something. We can start with those three that you mentioned there. But we can also just consider the fact that it doesn't take much to have a conversation. It doesn't take much to, to sit in somebody's space. And you'll find that even though you're uncomfortable, if you will engage in deliberate discomfort, after a while, you won't be so uncomfortable anymore. And you'll learn something new about yourself and the other person. And that's what it all comes down to for me. And thank you for instilling this hope in humanity, um, Sunny, and that through your, through, through your work and through the talk and... And thank you for opening up to our listeners that they can connect with you and learn more about your work um, through your website. And I just want to make sure that our listener knows that the talk is actually available online, but it's only available for a limited time period. So I want to make sure our listener knows about that. And if you can share um, maybe that link and the time period and and also that once after the whole coronavirus that it that people can watch you in person yeah. and to have a real live experience. So if you can share that um, yeah. as we end the interview. And I'm so glad that the video played for you because I was really concerned about that because so much of the talk is call and response. It's me. I actually touch audience members. Like I break that fourth wall and we, we have a talk. And so I was afraid that we would lose that in the video, but I'm glad that you saw that key and you were connecting to that. Um, so the producers of the talk, uh, which includes Street Signs uh, Center for Literature and Performance, as well as Bulldog Ensemble Theater and Playmakers Repertory Theater in uh, North Carolina, they've all come together and they funded this project to post the talk online for free. If you go to bulldogdurham.org, bulldogdurham.org, there are a couple other sites as well. If you go to uh, Street Signs Center for Literature and Performance or to Playmakers Repertory Theater, which is out of UNC Chapel Hill, any of their websites, you'll be able to find it. Click on the talk. You can watch the show for free. It's 80 minutes of me just pouring out my heart, mind, and soul, playing the 22 or so different characters. You'll laugh, you'll cry. I hope you'll be, um, I hope you'll be um, convicted in some ways and challenged to do better in a, in a, in a positive productive, generative way, right? And then afterward, I ask that you click on that link, make a donation, help out, invest in communities who get most, and then go out and start having this talk with other people and keep the love going. The talk is, at the end of the day, it's about love. And love covers a multitude of sins. Love never fails. And I believe that. Um, And so I challenge people to take the love that they get from the show. It is my work of love, my labor of love, dedicated to my beautiful baby boy and to every child of every hue across this nation. If you'll take that love and, and, and take it from the virtual and make it reality, I think we'll be in the right direction. So check out that website and also sunnykelly.com. I'd be glad to come out and, and lead a talk virtually or in person with you. Of course, you know, social distancing, so six feet away, mask, all that kind of stuff, but We'll work it out. Now, I tell you one thing, Key, one thing that I look forward to, though, is when social distancing stops is hugging. My primary love language is physical touch. And I just want to, I love, after the show, I love to hug people because it just, you've gone through so much, right? And I love to just let people know I'm with you and I'm connected to you. So I really miss that. I look forward to being able to hug people again. Uh, those who like hugs, it's not all, not everybody's a hugger. That's cool. I, I've learned to ask first. Yeah. And thank you for creating a show that doesn't call us out, but really calls us in. 
into a space of hope and love, because I think that is so underestimated and how much we need that now. And so thank you, Sunny, for making the show and also right now making it available um, for free online so that everyone could take part in this talk and that everyone could you know, get a little bit out of it and then start this internal dialogue and have a conversation and talk to someone that's different and even have your own self-inquiry like, gosh, like, do I have biases or why do I have biases? And, and not to feel guilty. And that's what I loved about your show was that it was not about guilt, but more about true understanding and understanding that a lot of the things that we see are systemic and that we have to start questioning, like, why is it systemic? And then what, and we can't change the past, right? But we can do something right now and for our future. And not only think about yourself, but your future kids, right? Like, what type of world do you want your children and your grandchildren to live in? And that's your legacy today is to make that change and that shift. And so thank you so much, Sunny and Dr. Kelly uh, for making such a beautiful masterpiece. Oh, so. thank you for affirming me. Thank you for seeing me, seeing the piece. And you said it so well. I mean, there's no better close you can say to what you just said. Thank you very much. This is my goal of my work that it just touches people in that way. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. Pleasure. <laughs> in touch, honey. Right. Take care, Keith. If you got questions about any of the episodes, feel free to reach out to me directly. And while you're there at it, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episode that you felt connected with so that we could be a part of this collective invisible force called public health. Thanks.